people experiencing homelessness still like to stay in their community. So all homelessness is really local. And so it's really beneficial for cities to really know their homeless population and really be able to serve them in the way that they need to be served. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are, of course, proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Build America Mutual, and Odyssey Advisors. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Californian, Marylander, uh, (laughs) resident of a snowy mountain this particular morning, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Yeah, thanks, Justin. We had our first actual snow of the season. It was legit. It looked like about uh, probably two inches, but it was really wet and the sun came out. And so I, I haven't looked out the window lately, but it's uh, it's probably going to be all gone by by tonight. But uh, very exciting to get get snow for a little bit, ran out and take pictures. So that's, a, that's about uh, my parents. My parents grew up in snowy climates and I obviously grew up in California and they always told me as a kid that snow is better if you could drive to it. <laughs> which I now understand a lot better. <laughs> that is that is well said. Uh, growing up in northern Wisconsin, I I would agree wholeheartedly with with what they said. Terrific. So speaking of uh, non-snowy climates, we actually have on the show today two guests from the city of Chandler, Arizona, outside of Phoenix. Uh, very fortunate to welcome their CFO who is Dawn Lang and their community resources manager, Ryan Balch. And they're going to tell us about some of the really interesting work that Chandler has been doing around funding of services for homelessness at the local level. This is a, an issue, Liz, that, that has come up in a, in a couple of different ways on the podcast over the, the last several months and years now. You know, this question of, of homelessness is obviously really complicated, has a lot of underlying factors. And we, it seems like we, every time we talk about other related kinds of issues, whether it's public safety, whether it's mental health, uh, whether it's human services more generally, all topics that we've covered on this podcast, this question of homelessness and, and what sorts of services, what sorts of infrastructure you need to try to combat homelessness comes up. And yet it's a really, really challenging issue from a fiscal perspective, particularly a local fiscal perspective. You've done a lot of work on this and uh, certainly are familiar with the goings on in Chandler and elsewhere, when you think about that friction at the local fiscal level around what to do about homelessness, what comes to mind? Yeah, as you, as you noted, it's homelessness is caused by so many things, but and it also causes so many things. I mean, it is it is so interwoven into things like mental health, into into public safety. And um, and probably other things I'm not thinking of. What's fascinating to me about it, and 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 the thing that I've seen local finance officials talking about more and more, particularly since the pandemic, is how to how to apply something across more than one just department. Because clearly, we know, for example, that somebody with a mental health issue is more likely to become homeless, and that that person may then be more likely to have a, an interaction with police. And so, you know, these these are not isolated pieces when it comes to to a person. And so they shouldn't necessarily be isolated when it comes to government agencies. And so 
local finance officials know we all know this but it's how do you get how do you get a budget how do you get programming that is just so innately siloed to 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 go across that how do you bust out of those and so that's that's kind of the big question and, and you talk about programs that funding a program that touches on three four or five different city departments um, or agencies and and then that require necessarily requires coordination and and are you tracking the data and so there's just just a lot that goes in there but at the end of the day you know it boils down to um, how can we apply public money most effectively so that ultimately we have less of this issue and and save and and that money can be directed towards you know towards something else or something that that helps these programs even more so it's uh this is why I love public finance it is the the funding for for programs like these these programs are interconnected because of the money because of the outcomes and um and and public finance kind of stretches across all of these areas and so when we talk about public finance you get to talk about kind of almost anything that that you want if you really want to start getting into it so that's um but again just i've heard a lot more about the idea of these cross-cutting initiatives from public finance officers in the last couple of years and that's that's pretty cool Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod to the members of the leadership team for the city of Chandler, Arizona. We have the CFO, Don Lang, and Community Resources Manager, Ryan Balch. Don and Ryan, welcome to the Public Money Pod. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you guys. And I think this may be only the second or third, second time that we've had a had a double guest episode. So this is exciting. Could you all start out for us just by like, tell, tell us about Chandler, Arizona. What's, what's the population? Where is it? Give us a, a picture of the city in which you work for our listeners. Sure, Liz, I'll go ahead and start with that. The city of Chandler, Arizona actually started in 1920 and uh, it grew a lot in the through the early 2000s. We were growing uh, at a very quick rate. Today we are up at about 285,000 in population. Uh, we're the fourth largest city in Arizona. Um, we are extremely financially stable. Um, a lot of that has to do with just a really great diversified economic portfolio of businesses, and the largest being Intel Corporation, uh, which right now is about uh, 11,000 employees, uh, and they're doing a $20 billion expansion in our city right now. And then, of course, we have a, a lot of other great businesses um, in the financial sector and a lot of different areas. So uh, it has really helped boost Chandler's economy. Our local economy is strong and um we are currently standing at about a $1.66 billion budget. We have a little over um, 1,750 full-time equivalent employees, and we're in the southeast corner of the Phoenix metro area, but a beautiful place to be if anyone ever wants to come visit. <laughs> so like a lot of cities, Chandler is dealing with a rise in homelessness. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a, a, a little bit about that. We've, on the Public Money Pod, Several guests, particularly in the West, have have talked about homelessness. I wonder if you could give us a, a sense of how it's going there, what's driving it, and um, you know, broadly speaking, how it fits into the way that you all are thinking about city services in the city of Chandler. Sure, of course, I'll take that one. Um, homelessness in Chandler is increasing very much at the same rate that it's increasing here in the Phoenix metro area and across the state, and and honestly across the nation. And 
I think the biggest factor increasing homelessness is the cost of housing, or more particularly, the way that the cost of housing and has outpaced uh, wages. So um, it's it's not enough anymore to just have a you know two wage earning household um, to be able to afford the cost of housing anymore. Um, and that certainly can be true here in Chandler. To, um, we have a very good economy, but we have a high wage earning um, economy. So if you're at the lower end of that, it can be very hard to um, afford even an apartment. So if you're not earning a wage that's, you know, if you're not working at Intel or Wells Fargo or Northrop Grumman, some of our higher end employers, um, it can be hard to afford apartments, which a lot of times now the apartments are costing more than maybe a house mortgage. That is about supply and demand. There's more demand for housing than there is supply. And so when that happens, landlords can charge more. And that's what's happening here in Arizona. And so that leads to an increase in homelessness. Of course, there are other factors contributing as well. Our healthcare system and our behavioral healthcare system, some deficits there certainly lead to people becoming homeless and having some trouble ending their homelessness. Those are certainly factors. But in the end, it's about housing. So we are seeing in Chandler, we're serving um, somewhere between 800 and 900 unduplicated persons experiencing homelessness each year. Um, on our roster at any given time, we have about 350 to 400 persons that we're serving at any given time. And we do that through um, our own city employees who are our navigators, community navigators, and they're actually out there on the streets every day looking for people experiencing homelessness or fielding the people that are actually coming into our office or calling, um, saying that they're experiencing homelessness and working with them. So we're, we're serving them in a variety of capacities. It could be anything from interacting with them on the street and building a relationship, finding out what their needs are, to um, serving them in our non-congregate shelter program. Or uh, we also support many nonprofits in our community that that provide emergency shelter. And then we also have housing programs, tenant-based rental assistance programs, specifically for persons experiencing homelessness, emergency housing vouchers. Those are some new COVID resources. Um, and of course, our own public housing authority, which the city of Chandler operates its own public housing authority. We also have preferences in our housing assets for people experiencing homelessness. So we do um, many different types of services for people experiencing homelessness all throughout the year. So. How does the, the rise in homelessness and, and the, the navigators program, how does that affect the budget? Are there are there different costs to a community, having community navigators than there would be just by having a stationary office? And are there more budget resources going towards the, the homelessness services? So that's a great question. So historically, um, so for many years, we, we, the city of Chandler, um, supported nonprofits in working with people experiencing homelessness. And so we used some general fund dollars to support them in those efforts. As homelessness began to grow in our city and we wanted to have more of a direct impact, the calls are starting to come into municipalities, right? Um, and so we have a more, you know, more responsibility and we want to have more control, I would say, over the outcomes and we want to make a more direct impact. Um, so we started to hire city employees um, that could actually do that outreach. And um, so over time, so they've been temporary, temporary employees as we've kind of felt out our level of need. And 
over the last couple of years, our city council has been extremely involved and generous in making making sure that we're going to have that ongoing resource. So we now at this point have um, one uh, supervisor who runs, oversees all of our homeless programs. And then we have two um, full-time community navigators that the city supports. And each year we look at that and decide if we need to um, make some more employees full-time um, as we look at our level of need. One of the things that COVID did for us in a positive way was brought all the municipalities together. And so there's not a day that goes by that I don't talk to my colleagues that do the work that I do in other cities. And so we also look at this very regionally in Maricopa County, um, where Chandler is. And um, we're all looking at what levels of services we need and how we can work together and what fund sources are available. So um, I've been very successful and very grateful to both Maricopa County um, and the state of Arizona, who are both supporting our efforts as well. So it's really um, a joint effort. It's it's county funds, it's state funds, it's local funds, grant funds from private funders. We, we put all of those fund streams together to make comprehensive services that work in our city. Combining all of those different funding streams sounds easier easier said than done, I guess, is maybe the right way yeah. to, to say it. How have you been able to do I mean, is that a high level? How have you been able to do Have you had to create any new budgeting or accounting structures? Have you, you know, how exactly are you able to do that? All of those things. You're very astute. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, there's two things, right? There's the programmatic level and um, running the programs that have joint or braided funding streams, blended or braided, there's a little bit of difference there. And then there's, you know, the administrative oversight of all of these different grants that have different requirements um, and managing that. And then there's the accounting and and financial side um, and making that work with the city budget. So um, we've been very fortunate. Our ability to work together is very seamless. We're all very um, mission oriented and in it together. So as soon as we get new funds, we come together and we figure out what those structures and administrative pieces need to be. Um, we have utilized some administrative f- funds from the grants that we've gotten to, to make sure that we have like the necessary infrastructure to do reporting and, and all of that. But, you know, everyone's really stepped up. Don probably has something to add on the, on the accounting side of that. Yeah, I certainly could. Um, I haven't seen this level of federal and state support that we've received since COVID in all the years I've been doing this. So uh, a large portion of the dollars that were received through AZ Cares, as well as ARPA, are both a big portion was used for quality of life category, which includes the homeless programs and some of these where folks were really struggling in our community. And, you know, we have a community, like Ryan said, that is really, you know, higher bachelor degree or higher, I think is uh, in Chandler, we're at 48% compared to the national average, which is 36%. Um, And a lot of that's because of the technology-based and financial-based companies that have come into Chandler. And so, like she said, with the housing crisis and everything else, people are struggling that have never struggled before. And so having availability of these funds to kind of get through this period has been really helpful, but something does have to change because eventually these funds will run out. And we have to figure out, like, again, like Ryan said, what's the ongoing level of support that will come from ongoing taxpayer dollars into the future. Will it stay like this forever? I highly doubt it because over time, things are kind of cyclical and 
hopefully people can get back on their feet and housing prices go down a bit. And, um, but I think we'll always have some form of people experiencing homelessness in our community, and that should be recognized in our ongoing budget. And council has supported that so far. I think probably the biggest cliff that we have coming is that eviction prevention piece where CARES and ARPA were so big and influential. And, you know, those dollars are are coming to an end. We'll, our dollars, we, we use all of our dollars um, already. And then the county continues to support us, but their dollars will end here at the end of December as well for that. And so, you know, my ear is certainly open um, at the federal level to see what that's going to look like in the future. Um, Arizona, unfortunately, does have one of the highest eviction rates in the nation. And so that's sort of our spigot, our on spigot to homelessness. Um, the more people that get evicted, the more homelessness we will see. So I'm really looking to cut that off earlier with eviction prevention practices and um, trying to keep people in their homes. That's the best thing we can do to lower the numbers of homelessness. So I'm really focused on what that's going to look like coming in the future. And there's there's no level of municipal support that can impact that, right? We're talking about ongoing rent. Mm -hmm. So yes, supporting affordable housing is so important. Supporting living wages is so important. But in terms of literally preventing eviction, that's a much greater, you know, that's a much broader picture and ask. And so I'm really looking to, I'm I'm hoping to see a much broader federal picture in the near future. Um, That would be my hope. I I know in in some places, like in New Jersey City, I think, for example, um, they are pushing to make having representation for those who are under threat of like eviction attorneys, basically, to represent those who are are at danger of losing their home, making that a publicly funded service, just like a, you know, a defense attorney, like a, a, you know what I mean, making that a publicly funded service. Is that something that um, is on on the slate of possibilities or that's something that you all have ever discussed? Yeah. So we're regulated at the state level on many of these things. I think a lot of efforts would be need to be legislated at the state level. You know, we wait and see on those kinds of things that there are certainly conversations going on, but you know, Arizona has tended to be a little bit more um, conservative in wanting to legislate, you know, how landlords can do business. To add to that, um, Chandler does have support court, And we've been doing that for some time uh, that allows people experiencing homelessness. Often it might be eviction. It might be drugs. It might Mm -hmm. be a lot of different reasons. And uh, it seems like the court system seems to not really be friendly to them and kind of it's this ongoing cyclical route right back into the jails. So um, support court is something additional that We usually have someone who guides them through the court process and helps them navigate that. I don't know how successful it's been lately. Um, Ryan probably has more information on that, but that's something that we're doing through the courts. Ryan, earlier when you were talking about using um, a good, uh, using the federal, some of the federal funding, the community navigators, that is, that was a pre-existing program, right? Okay. Is that something that you, you all have expanded or done some more experimenting in that area? So the community navigators, um, taking those internal into a city is Mm -hmm. something that, um, is, is I'd say maybe, um, a career defining thing for me, um, 
both at another city and here and, and really taking on that work. And that's really blossomed everywhere because the city is really so responsible, right, for what's happening to their residents on their streets and how it's impacting the community. So that's really something that we brought inside and we're really able to get the highest level of outcomes by having internal employees. We had we did have a couple of employees that were internal. Potentially, they were temporarily funded at that point before COVID. But um, during COVID, we were able to have our first not temporary, you know, full-time regular funded employees. But also we used CDBG CV, the coronavirus specific CDBG dollars to double our workforce in the navigator area and that during COVID. And that was, so we went from having, um, three to having seven. One is specific to our support card program. So we kind of went from three on the streets to six on the streets. And those navigators, number one, helped us to, you know, the only thing you could do was serve outside, right? Everywhere was closed. So made sure that we were still communicating um, with our homeless residents. They didn't have a place to shelter in place. There was no place for them to shelter in place. So it was extremely important that we had eyes and ears on folks that were left, literally left out of the picture, right? Left outside during COVID um, and make sure they were physically okay, that they were getting food, like the very basics when everything shut down. So having those extra eyes and ears was really helpful. But also um, we use two of those positions to staff our non-congregate shelter program, which was also a COVID, I don't want to say invention, because, you know, we've all in 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 the field of homelessness, we would all love to have non-congregate shelter at all times, mm-hmm. but COVID made it happen. Um, we always knew, of course, non-congregate shelter is the answer, right? People need their own space. A congregate living is a very difficult thing, especially when you're in crisis. So we use those positions to do that daily case management in our non-congregate shelter spaces. We were able to do that because of CDBG CV. Um, and then, so those dollars are now sunsetting, right? Where we continued that through ARPA. And then we're looking locally at, you know, what level of service do we need to continue and will we support with local dollars as we move forward. We have been very successful with our model. Many other cities come to us and ask us about our um, community navigator program. And again, that's because um, that's my my biggest passion is that program. It's it's just my thing. And so we have been able to really help ourselves and other cities really get those locally focused programs off the ground because interestingly people experiencing homelessness still like to stay in their community so all homelessness is really local and so it's really beneficial for cities to really know their homeless population and really be able to serve them in the way that they need to be served um, in their own communities so we have tremendous outcomes and uh, we've been able to help others build very similar programs that work in their communities. And so those COVID dollars were extremely important to that effort. You know, Arizona, like a lot of states, particularly in the West, has a, a, a local fiscal structure, a lot of it state regulated, that from what certainly from what Liz and I have heard, can create a set of fiscal incentives that might work against the kinds of things you need to do to try to address your housing affordability challenges, right? There's property tax limits, can make it a little bit tricky to build and have the right infrastructure to support new development when you're very sales tax driven that puts a lot of emphasis on you know on retail and and on you know certain types of fiscal activity that may or may not line up with density you know may or may not line up with the kinds of things you need to do 
to try to just increase the supply of housing. Is that the case with you? Are you having to resolve that kind of tension between the way that your fiscal incentives line up and then the things that you could do to try to address your homelessness issues? Yeah, much like other states, we absolutely have those issues. But one really positive, um, another positive thing that has recently happened is um, last legislative session, there was a uh, housing supply study committee, and it included developers, landlords, um, people delivering homeless services, um, and they really dissected um, all of these issues and uh, made a set of recommendations about, you know, what what might happen in the future. So yes, they exist, but the good news is that it's also being recognized and being studied and all parties are there. And so um, a report has come out. Hopefully we'll start looking at what options are viable to you know, sort of move the needle a little bit. I think a lot of states are now trying to address this. They're getting pressure from people. And so they're forming these subcommittees. Um, It's a bigger conversation today, I think, than ever before because of the housing prices being as high as they are. So um, certainly Arizona is, is in that group of states trying to do that as well. We in Chandler have the lowest sales tax rates. We have the lowest utility rates. Um, So we do have some area for um, growth in our just our local finances that could help support this. So it really becomes a community topic. Um, Certainly, we're hoping that the state puts legislation in that can help this into the future. But um, we also are trying to figure out locally how much support we want to put towards this. And so it's every budget year in the last, I would say at least three years, it's been a big topic being discussed. And it, I would anticipate it's going to be another big topic for the 24-25 budget, which we're going to be talking about in January already. <laughs> the ARPA, the federal relief funding that you mentioned, is um, there's a, a chunk of that is going towards this. How are you all looking at transitioning and maybe that maybe you've alluded to that already with with the with the what's going on at the state level but how are you all considering transitioning to using your own revenue to cover all of this or, or are you looking at other other options for that you know kind of weaning off of the the federal funding support like Don said earlier we were we really used a lot of our ARPA for quality of life issues which was very helpful and what it allowed us to do was really um, stand up some new programs and sort of um, validate that they worked. So we really have some great proof of concept now. We know that non-congregate shelter works versus congregate settings. It really allows us to serve people who have more need, um, serve people who uh, have pets, medication challenges, dietary challenges, behavioral challenges, that just all of these things that don't really work in a non-congregate or sorry, in a congregate setting, in a group setting. And it's really helped us to move some of the folks that are been on the streets long term into a more stabilized setting and then and then into permanent housing. So that's a great example of something that we've been able to show, not just here in Chandler, but all across the valley that really works. And so that's a place where we're all looking to maybe this is an area that's a that's a great investment, right? Better outcomes, shorter, shorter lengths of stay, uh, being able to serve the most vulnerable people who um, are using, frankly, the most public funds while they're on the streets, right? So that is great. And so then regionally, we get to have these conversations and the state and the county still really have a lot of these dollars left. So yes, the cliff is coming, but we've sort of transitioned from using our local 
uh, funds that are gone now to the state and uh, county funds that are still available, those ARPA and uh, dollars. And then, you know, the conversation is, and then where do we go from here? But this, the models are getting stronger and stronger. And so we're sort of able to eliminate what doesn't work and really concentrate on what does work. And I think we're all very much in agreement about what does work. Another great example is um, we have climate change and we've all been doing you know, what we can over the years in terms of heat relief for people experiencing homelessness. But it's become very obvious to us all now as we watch the public health data and frankly, the number of fatalities here in Arizona that happen each summer and the length of time that heat is around us now. It's, it's not just a small time in the summer. It's a very long period of time for us. You know, it's starting in May and it's going through October. So that's a, a long period of time. And so we're looking at what does that investment need to look like and how can we utilize that heat relief service as a way into a more permanent service. So we're doing a lot of looking at how should our services be operated and how can we invest the dollars we have towards that. And that also leads to potentially other fund sources in the future, right? Heat is not necessarily something that's a public health issue. So are there public health dollars that can be spent there? You know, how does this impact healthcare and avoiding all the healthcare related costs? Um, and so maybe some of those healthcare system dollars need to be navigated in this direction. So there's lots of higher level looks at all of this and how dollars should be invested and where we should be looking in the future for these dollars. So lots of conversation. Yeah, zooming out uh, from homelessness for a little bit, but staying with the theme of the federal money, if you could tell us about you know any other areas where those federal dollars have been invested and then we have now this fiscal cliff as those federal dollars run out. Uh, any other areas that you're watching where there've been investments of federal dollars that now need to go off into uh, local money or services that need to be scaled back or, or whatever it might be? So the ARPA funding, um, overall with everything, when you look across the board on AZ Cares, ARPA, plus a lot of CDBG dollars that were received. In Chandler alone, we were up to almost $95 million. So um, as we've been able to apply these to different programs, there are a few that that uh, we need to look at. And um, we tried really hard to make sure that these were put towards things like quality of life to make people's lives better today. But we also used our ARPA dollars towards a lot of more one-time things. There was all kinds of rules around, um, you know, different uh, park improvements maybe to allow better outdoor spaces for people or um, staffing levels. Um, and now we're working on bringing our staffing levels back up to pre-pandemic. And so we were able to actually use the ARPA dollars to help pay those. But some areas that might need a little bit more uh, discussion, I think is going to be in the area of police and fire. Um, we're using quite a bit for police hiring incentives and recruitment costs. Um, and I think this is going to probably be one of those areas that's more ongoing. One other area is technology. So we were able to put quite a bit of the AZ CARES dollars towards enhancing technology to allow discussions to continue virtually. Uh, we were a bit behind inside our city, outside the city. We have all kinds of technology companies, but inside the city, we, we really needed to do quite a bit of work. And I think that was true for a lot of communities. We have done that. We have ramped up um, our technology 
we've invested in security, but all of these things we used one-time ARPA dollars and now come with an ongoing mm. cost. So we're building those over the last, I'd say two years. And I know I just met with our IT director and um, he's got quite a quite a few other items that have ongoing costs that are related to things that we put in during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. And of course, we're not going to go backwards. So we've got to bite the bullet and get that built into our ongoing budgets. Is there anything that either of you wanted to to bring up as a outside of this topic as something that you see as, um, you know, an upcoming challenge or priority? One thing that's going to be an upcoming challenge in our in 24-25's budget preparation is the state of Arizona is starting to see a decline in their revenues as you know they were so high before, but um, they've committed a lot of these dollars uh, out. And so they're going to be making decisions on what to pull back on. I'm not sure if that's going to impact these quality of life issues or how they're going to do that. Um, they're already talking about taking away our ability to tax certain things at the local level in regards to transaction privilege taxes. So all of this kind of plays out in the picture of affordability for localities to afford ongoing costs in this realm. And so uh, I just think that's something we all need to be aware of. Inflation still remains high. Our revenues, our local revenues are still very strong, but um, you know, there's all kinds of talk about a recession. Is there going to be one? Is there not? Um, we certainly just want to kind of keep our forecast as conservative as possible, yet continue to do the right thing for our community. So it's just kind of this yin and yang all the time when we're preparing our budget and watching what the state's going to do and trying to keep them out of our pockets. So <laughs> as well, <laughs> help protect our local revenue streams. Well, thank you so much. To our two guests today from the city of Chandler, Arizona, Don Lang, who is the CFO, and Ryan Balch, who is in charge of community resources for the city of Chandler, Arizona. Thank you both for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks so much for having us. It was fun. Thanks again to Don and Ryan for that really interesting conversation. I mean, we touched on so many different things about how how um, community navigators and the issue of homelessness, and we brought up public safety, and just there's a lot of a lot of things that are interwoven. We ended up also talking off pod too about the uh, the community navigators and that that importance of having a lived experience when you're doing that direct outreach and, and how that really, really helps, really helps bring people in and who, who need services. And today's ripped from the headlines piece kind of touches, expands upon that. It's, it's sort of a, a digital example of that, that idea of having the right user experience in order to make some, make something new, really effective. The the piece is from Route 50. It's by Mo- Molly Bolin. The headline is No Wrong Doors, Making Benefits Easier to Access. And this is about a rollout of a program in Colorado. So Colorado recently approved uh, paid family leave for uh, most workers in the state. Um, but uh, as Molly points out, dealing with the government can be a little annoying. Um, and a lot of families, especially those who are most vulnerable and most in need, don't know how to navigate the system. And so in rolling out this new program of, of paid family leave, Colorado also wanted to make it really, really 
accessible to make sure that everyone who had the right to use it could do that. And so they turned to uh, user-friendly tech to make these benefits more accessible. Um, they launched an online portal allowing workers to apply for paid family leave, and uh, they're going to host virtual meetings in different languages to help uh, residents navigate the system. They are working with the New Practice Lab, which has experience elsewhere doing this. They they helped New Jersey improve their access to paid family leave, and this was particularly interesting. The, the New Jersey's program was especially complex because its framework was based on the state's temporary disability and, un and unemployment system. So existing institutional structures didn't quite adapt very well to a new paid family leave system. So it was the case that workers essentially had to submit two applications. Um, as one person, this is from the story, as one person told the new practice lab, you need a maternity leave pay for dummies so people know what to do, when to do, and how to do it. And so the the new practice lab worked with the state on kind of revamping the user experience, interviewing families and employers to see where people were getting stuck, confused, or giving up. And there were several takeaways from, from that. The first is to make it easier for the public to learn about government services. Uh, this is from Tara McGinnis, who uh, helps run, who's founder of the, the New Practice Lab. She says, second, applications should be as clear and simple as possible to reduce confusion. It's uh, New Jersey, for instance, cut back on alphabet soup, replacing acronyms and legal jargon with plain language throughout applications. Uh, the third lesson, importance of streamlining and regularly refreshing the application process. Again, just you know, checking in and and making sure it still works how it's supposed to, or if there are new snags. And here's there's a couple of key points here. One, um, the story points out that making programs more easily accessible and efficient helps build trust in government. And I think that is a super, super important thing to highlight from the, the, the story says. And McGinnis also says her advice is when rolling out new systems, there's two important questions to keep in mind. Does it work? And does it make the users feel like they've been heard? And so how agencies answers answer those questions determines what people's experience of government is. And that is, I mean, that kind of touches on a lot of, you know, that like the themes of what we talked about uh, previously with Don and Ryan, just the importance of really testing stuff out and testing it out for yourself and finding out what that experience is like. And so I, I really find stuff like this, this fascinating that um, really work that the user experience and redesigning government programs around that rather than, you know, here's your money, go make it work. Um, we'll roll it out and cross our fingers, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I enjoyed that story. Justin, uh, did you, what were some of the the takeaways or things that, that this made you think of? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it too. It was a really, really great way of uh, extending some of the themes that we got to in the in the conversation with Don and Ryan. I, it was interesting when I was reading this. The first thing that came to mind was something that somebody we're both fond of. Mark Funkhauser often mm -hmm. likes to say, which is that from citizens' perspective, it's all the government, right? It's it's all the government mm -hmm. in quotes, and these distinctions that we often, out of necessity, draw around different levels of government, different funding streams, whether it's a government or its nonprofit contractor, whatever it might be, these distinctions that matter a lot to us don't really matter all that much to the people who use these services at the end of the day. And with time, especially when you get into these really complex issues like homelessness, I think it, it, we've seen the pendulum swing now in the direction of, you know, no, in fact, this is this is something that we need to work on. This is not something that we need to convince users of these services that these distinctions that we draw, mm -hmm. these these silos, which euphemistically 
we don't we used to not call them silos, right? We used to call them cylinders of excellence as a way to to <laughs> as a way oh, well, to, to justify totally. their existence. Um, <laughs> That, that you know these 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 silos exist as a way of, of ensuring accountability right as a way of making sure that resources are used as they were intended to be used nobody's against that per se and yet that has to be in some ways more compatible with the actual user experience than it is in so many ways this reminded me as as I was reading this too you know there's a lot of been really really great work as of late in public administration public policy public management you know Don Moynihan great scholar at Georgetown's work comes to mind along with uh, Pam Hurd and some of his co-authors authors on what they call administrative burden, which is really what this mm-hmm. is. Um, the, the idea that what we might call normally what you would just call red tape, it goes beyond red tape. It's red tape that has, in some cases, been been put in place deliberately. In fact, some call administrative burden policymaking by another means, right, or a different form of policymaking. You can have a, a program or a policy that's designed to do a particular thing, but when it's implemented, rolled out, and the user experience is completely different or at odds with those policy goals, you get practically speaking, a different policy. And and that's a really, really important point. One of the things that we've, in studying administrative burden over the years, one of the central questions that's come up is, well, how often is that administrative burden planned, deliberate, put mm-hmm. in place by policymakers? And how often is it inadvertent or just a, a technicality? I think, and again, people who might dispute this, but I think as we've studied it pretty broadly, one of the things we're finding, at least at the local level, is that more often than not, it's in that latter category. It, it's distinctions that weren't necessarily put in place to make it more difficult to access these benefits. It's just a function of the financial reporting, budgeting, technology, other systems, other infrastructure we have in place to manage these these systems. And so what you're seeing in this article, and certainly a lot of what uh, both Don and Ryan talked about, was attempts at the local level to, to try to cut through that administrative burden, improve that user experience. There is a discipline called user experience, right? There's people coming mm-hmm. into government from the tech world who that's what they do. Uh, tell us how is it that people interact with this technology and how to make those interactions better. So it's really, it's very, very interesting. And, and it, it raises this question of if we can get better when it comes to these user experience questions, can we improve trust in government? Can we ultimately argue on behalf of better use of financial resources? I think the answer is probably yes. And that makes it very much a public money question. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.